I'm Abhijat Sarasworth, and this is Fringe Legal, a collection of conversations with innovators on how to put ideas into practice. Each episode is a discussion with a changemaker who shares their ideas, insights, and lessons from their journey. On this episode, I'm delighted to be speaking to the co-founder of Capacity. We'll get into what Capacity is, what problems it solves, but just to frame the conversation, if you've been reading anything, you would have heard about attrition rates within law firms. And part of that, not the only reason, but a big part of that reason is professional services environments are stressful. There's certainly a issue with managing people's workload, managing the capacity and what kind of work and how frequently that work is allocated to them. It certainly connects into a lot of the themes that we all find ourselves in today, including remote working in different offices. There's uh, issues of bias and there's issue of diversity and inclusion. So all of these things are pressing topics that come across all of our desks and our eyes and ears every single day. Capacity actually brings a lot of these things to focus um, and it allows you to be able to measure some of these things so you can take deliberate action and be able to come up with a strategy for your firm. Uh, but I don't want to steal too much of Will's thunder. Uh, so Will, thank you so much for joining me today, firstly. Pleasure. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And um, I guess to get things started, if people haven't heard of Capacity, would you mind just starting us off with what is it? What do you do? And yeah, what problems do you solve? Uh, a really high level capacity is the bridge between the what the strategic leadership of the firm wants to happen and the decisions that are actually being made on the ground. So whether that be prioritizing, like you've alluded to issues like attrition, or diversity inclusion is ensuring that those things are actually sharply in focus when key decisions are being made in the business. And obviously one of those uh, key decision points and potentially the most important decision that's made every day is who gets staffed and what proje project, because everything else flows from there, really, whether it's things like quality of work, financials, values, EDI initiatives, lawyer development, associate retention, or client satisfaction. All of those things follow from that decision point. And so it's a very important moment for the business. And we're trying to ensure first and foremost, that the right person is on the right task as often as possible. And for those that may not be familiar, myself included, how is this done today? So we'll, we'll limit this to law firms, I think probably certainly for <laughs> my benefit, but how, how would, let's say we get a matter Another firm is signed off, everyone celebrates, uh, great, we have a new client. How does that work get allocated today? There's lots of different methods that are used by firms. We hear about everything from no process, which just is so sometimes dubbed the free market approach, which is effectively where the lead partner on the project will just pick who they want to work on the team. But that, that's often fine, but a lot of the times it creates some issues. A couple of those being, first of all, that you don't necessarily get the person who's most available. And so project can be done slower. That person be, be, becomes very overworked and burnt out, et cetera. And because rarely a junior associate is going to say no, because there's no like maximum hours that they're expected to work. You don't want to be queried, well, what time are you finishing? Why are you saying no? And then other issues around uh, biases as well, where we uh, as humans have tendencies to preference people who are like us and a lot of this is unconscious and we don't necessarily know how that's impacting our. So 
that's a few challenges with that method. Other methods are um, a bit more formalized, but not all that much where you have a spreadsheet where teams will do a whip round once a week and ask everyone right. what's their availability like for next week. And then decisions will be made each week on that basis. But that data is very out of date and right. the way that law firms move so fluidly, <laughs> it's very hard to make sure that's accurate when you need it. Yeah. And I, I think certainly it's not real-time data, but it, even if it, if, even if there is someone who is in charge of keeping up to date with it, or certainly managing that spreadsheet, then you're usually getting instructions from all sorts of different ways. And law firms aren't exactly known to be the most collaborative environments by default. They can get there, but usually a lot of this information lives in a silo. So I can only imagine how that compounds the problem. And the other, let's call it method that you mentioned, the free market one, certainly the bias is an issue, but I guess in the old days, quote unquote, it would be based on who you are most familiar with or who yeah. you are closely proximate to. So I think that's a proximity that familiarity method. I assume there's an issue with that, right? Because if you find an associate that does good work, let's assume there's no bias here, then as a partner, you would continue going to this person. And I can imagine yeah. that there's probably an issue right at the top end of the scale of those people who are really good, getting completely burnt out because they're getting a lot of work. And those right at the bottom of the scale who are just hidden in the shadows because maybe they're not the most social or vocal individuals out there, or they're not being selected for whatever other reason. And both of them cause some problems, especially with, with people leaving. hundred percent. And all of it's compounded further by remote working because not everyone's in the office. And if you have that approach where that face-to-face -face contact or being next door or sharing an office is, is the primary mode of allocation, then. You can have a lot of people in your business that are just at home and don't know why they're not getting any work really. And actually we had a call with one of our uh, clients the other day where they were collecting feedback from their associate group. And this resonates deeply with them. And lots of them are saying things like, I'm a bit more introverted than other people in the team. That means I don't get the work opportunities. Some other people saying, I genuinely have no idea why I'm being overlooked. And all of that lends itself to tease out some other issues that we as the product look at. Things like feedback. How do people actually know how they're doing on work? How yeah. can we actually improve the lawyer? So it's not just about that allocation piece. It's about the whole development of the associates and ensuring that they are as good as they can be. And they are the number one resource for the business, right? They are the, it's a people business. They provide the services that right. the clients have contact with. So how can we help them to ensure that their careers are flourishing in the and not just flourishing, but in the direction they want it to. Because this is another problem with the free market approach is you can have a partner who loves you and wants to work with you all the time. And maybe you get along great, but maybe it's not exactly the kind of work you want to be doing, or it's not the area of law that you envisage yourself working in. But because these relationships become so entrenched, it's very hard for you to yeah. get out of them and actually move in that direction. So what happens? You leave. That's the only way to actually yeah. get to work on the kind of work you want to do. And so there's so many issues that, that come out of this. And so, yeah, we're really excited to see the impact culturally in these businesses and see what can, the power of it and what can really change when we start doing this in, in a way that makes um, a bit more sense, really, and is driven more by yeah. data. And, I, and you touched on remote work. I'm curious how things have changed. And I guess through the peak of COVID, a lot of people were working remote 
only. Now, especially if you're a larger organization, you may be working remote only, or you're certainly doing hybrid working, depending on geographies and everything else and people moving about. How do you, and how does your, I guess, your tool, the technology help with that and managing? Because as you were talking about this, I'm just thinking through, if I'm a large organization that has offices in different continents, right? There's cultural implications that you have to think about. There's all of these other things that you do have to think about from a development point of view, who actually decides and looks at this, right? So who, let's start there, I guess, but who in a firm would actually be responsible for overseeing the, I guess, the work allocation piece? Do they have, do most firms have someone who's tasked with doing this only? So lots of, especially the bigger firms do have resource management functions, which are still mm. in their infancy and being developed. Uh, the thing about our product is that it effectively changes the role of those functions if you have them. And it also means that you're not required to have them to get a lot of the benefit. Now, it might be that as organization gets larger, there's lots of benefits still, but the traditional software out there or traditional processes are very people heavy. Right. Because we're much more technological um, approach. So actually the work allocation is handled entirely by the software. Okay. So we, we have a few different work allocation methods. One is allowing the junior lawyers to pick their own work. Mm -hmm. Now I'll say up front of this, <laughs> I know how that sounds to some people. And I would say that it's down to the work allocator to choose which method they use. Got it. So it's, it's not mandating that process, but for a lot of work, when you're choosing a junior lawyer. What do you want? No one's an expert. You want someone who wants to do the work, someone who's available, engaged, keen for learning. So actually letting people choose ensures that you get that person, right? Like if we were and, living- And this is more in my head, and this is more that you're, it's allowing people to put their hand up that they're interested in doing this kind of no, work, or they're actually saying, I will do this work. And they're they essentially bidding for it. They take the work. It's you would populate predefined eligibility criteria and everyone who meets the criteria has the opportunity to take the work and the first one who takes it and that's the way it goes. Got and, it. um, so all of those things we think are going to be enormously impactful because I was going to use the example, let's say we're living together and. We do a spring cleaning and today's a Tuesday. For some reason, we like it doing it on a Tuesday. So there's 10 chores to do in our house. Either there's two options. Either you come home from work and I say to you, Hey, I've got these five chores I'm doing and here's the five you're doing. Or if I say to you, which five do you want? It makes a huge difference to someone when they engage with the process, when they pick what they actually want to be doing. And our proposition is that when you're a junior lawyer, that's most important. You're just trying to develop and, and decide on your career trajectory. Yeah. And these are some of the most commonly cited reasons as to why associates leave and junior lawyers leave. And so that's one option. Now, the other options, one is that we've developed, as far as I can tell, the world's first commercialized work allocation algorithm. Okay. So this is a really tech focused process where we're basically doing what uh, the resource manager might do in current law firms where they have a huge database of information and their job is to interrogate it, make decisions on that basis. But quite frankly, the feedback that we've had is that it's not really a tenable approach. Right. If you need to consume hundreds, thousands of pieces of data to make a decision, then you're paralyzed and you can't make the right decision because right. it'll just take too long. <laughs> so a system that can do that instantly, automated and provide all of that is hopefully a really progressive step for this part of the industry. Yeah, it's down to the system and the lawyers to decide right. it. And not just the juniors, the partners have options where they can choose as well. But where they make a choice, we try to help them inform their decision with data. Mm -hmm. So 
try and steer them, let them know who we think the most appropriate candidates sure. are. They can ignore that if they want. It's up to them. Um, yeah. But we're at least giving them that information. Whereas right now, if you like working with me and you're just going to give it to me, you don't know who else is more busy, who else is more needing the opportunity, who would be more engaged. <laughs> you don't know yeah. what's on my plate. And so all of that information is factored in into our process. Got it. Okay. And you mentioned that book allocation is one of the things that you do. So let me ask you a stupid question first. Is work allocation and capacity management, and I may be making things up myself, are they the same thing or do they have different meanings, at least to you? It's a really interesting question. So I think capacity management is just smoothing utilization, I would okay. say is how I think of it. So that's one facet of work allocation, how okay. available are people, but there's a lot of other information that would be relevant. And so work allocation should be multifaceted and should take consideration of who wants this work, who needs right. this work, who's best placed to deliver it, who's got the requisite skills, experience, et cetera. So it's much more nuanced and also things like cost. So there's a lot of factors to take into. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's why it's been such a challenging problem for law firms, right? It's, it's complex and there's no one size fits all. And that's why we've developed uh, a very responsive system that can actually be customized by the individual teams to ensure that they're getting the result that they're looking for from this process. So that's why I say like capacity is a bridge, it's yeah. a bridge between the strategic leadership and the decisions that are being made. So if you want to prioritize diversity, because that's a big problem in your team, right. then you can bake that into uh, the algorithm. You can bake that into the process and you can yield and measure the results from that mm -hmm. and see if it's having a positive impact. And right. if not, we can tweak it further. So. It's, it's very responsive and, and hopefully that means that you're getting a consistent approach across the firm. Got it. And work allocation, is that one facet of what capacity does or do you cover other things as well? Yeah, work allocation is one facet. I think the best way to think about capacity is like work allocation is our core feature, okay. at least for now. That is, we're trying to get that to be as good as possible. And we are dedicating ourselves to that. Mm. Absolutely. And we have a neuroscientist on our team who actually develops the methodologies based on modern neuroscience and organizational science. It, it's a lot broader than that. I, I would say our, our key focuses are on how can we solve the attrition problem as best we can. So how can we make the, the culture and the working environment a place where people want to stay, that want to work, right. want to build out a career there. Another pillar is the uh, EDI piece. So yeah. how can we ensure that the system is as fair as possible? And we have work allocation methods that we think are completely bias-free and can be proven to be bias-free with data. And so right. this is a huge step. It's not uh, a decision being made by a resource manager who unfortunately yeah. is human and subject yeah. They're the same unconscious right. bias as everyone else. So it's almost another layer of bias on top of the partners sure. in that process. So we're building technology that can just basically say, it doesn't matter what your biases are because we all have them and that's a human trait, but we can ensure that they don't impact decisions. So that's a key core component for us. Uh, beyond that, things like lawyer development. So I think the best way to describe the platform is we took um, all of the research around why people were unhappy in their jobs in the legal industry. And we used that research as a roadmap for what we were. So our platform is there to help tackle these deep seated, immensely challenging cultural problems that are faced by these firms. Those are the things that we're taking on. And those are the yeah. things that we're trying to assist with in one, in one space. It's yeah, it sounds like it's a big 
thing that you're trying to <laughs> because you're ultimately trying to change the culture at a- any given firm in order to be able to achieve these things. And it's interesting to hear that you have a neuroscientist on your staff. We'll talk about that some other day, I'm sure. But because as you're describing all of these things, none of these things are successful with just one person saying, this sounds great, let's do it, right? You do need buy-in from at least a team, as you were alluding to in a lot of your examples, or I guess in the best case scenarios, the entire firm gets behind it. So how do you solve for that? How do you help people get comfortable with a different way of doing this? And it could be the resource manager, if they are using your algorithm, saying, okay, as with some instances, what do I do now if this thing is doing what I would normally spend time doing? But also, just generally, I'm assuming there needs to be a level of input, both from the associates as well as partners or otherwise supervisors selecting what or putting in matters into the system, right? So you at least know what needs to be allocated. Exactly. So I'll say up front that the resource manager is basically trading in what we hear from them is the least rewarding part of their role for more time doing the more rewarding parts of their role. So our system will generate lots of insights and data. It will flag things to the resource managers who can then action those things. And that can be high level business insights, which can be fed into the strategy and feedback into how the strategy is being implemented across the firm. And things like managing the relationships with the lawyers, which is requires a defter touch. And yeah. that's not something that a blunt instrument like technology can actually help with. So they're hugely important um, to, to this process where firms have budget, et cetera, for mm-hmm. it. As I say, if you just want to allocate work and you yeah. want to keep costs down, the system is going to do that, we think, in a better way than a person can and a more cost-effective way. But if you have budget, then of course, these individuals have immense value to offer. So... They're not going to be sitting there worrying about what they can do. In right. fact, they'll be spending a lot more time assisting with the more, hopefully the more m- meaningful stuff. Otherwise, yeah, there is a degree of engagement, which is really important. And there's a lot of complex change management frameworks that need to be put in place and the, the change has to be managed appropriately. And I'd say the important thing there is that the lawyers know that we're here to help, right? Like we're here to make their, hopefully improve their lives at work every day. And so. We are all ears. We are a young yeah. startup. We want to work with you to hear about what you like and even more importantly, what you don't like about what we're doing here and, and how can we make that better for you? And we can be quick, agile and responsive in that yeah. respect. So hopefully um, that assists a bit with the, the feeling around changing the culture and imposing this change. Beyond that, the lawyers, especially the senior lawyers in law firms, know that attrition, know that diversity, these are some of the biggest challenges that they will face, existential challenges over the next 10 years. And it's not so hard, I would say, to get buy-in at that level. It's more the partner on the ground who's in the trenches working exceptionally hard, winning work, turning over work. And it's, hey, this is working for me. Why should I change? And so that's a complex issue. And it's something that we spend a lot of time on with our clients. In terms of usage, it's a self-service system. So the lawyers actually use it and they enter the data. The work allocator is substituting a phone call or an email for engaging with our platform and it should be quicker and yield a better result in quicker time. So hopefully that's not too hard to sell. And the junior lawyers, we don't need to convince them of anything. They're getting to choose. They're filling the rest. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They're getting to choose more of their own work. They're getting their career aspirations taken into account. Like 
even one of our early adopters is, well, we're having conversations around whether they will completely revamp their training and qualification programs because of the potential impact of this product. So that's huge for us to hear that and the the potential for change there. And so we we find that the juniors are um, incentivized for the change easily. And it's more that middle group where Mm. you've got hardworking partners who have worked a certain way and been very successful for a long time. And it's just, I guess, a hearts and mindset to ensure that everyone feels like the products, not just working for the firm and not just working for the associates they work with, but working for them too. And and we're putting a lot of work in to ensure that's the case. Yeah. And I I think uh, so many of those things resonate because those are exactly the points that as I speak to management teams and, and firms that I hear, right? That, absolutely everyone is talking about attrition, but generally people want their teams to be successful. They want the people that they're working with to be happier. I think it's very difficult to measure that in certainly law firms and definitely as you work remotely, but it's certainly a big problem. Talk to me a little bit about, because I certainly have views and I've heard and seen the research around it. When we talk about attrition, one of the things, and I'll, I'll find a source for it and link it in the show notes. One of the things I read was for large law firms here in the US, it cost about a hundred to $200,000 or maybe more in order to train an associate. That, that figure is old. I'm sure that's much, much higher now. So that's obviously, as we think about the impact of these things, because don't get me wrong, all technology is great. We should use that. But If I'm a decision maker in a firm and I'm thinking about, look, we are leveraging a lot of tech now as firms have started to do, why should we look at this? Of course, we want our our juniors to be happy, but that's not always a good enough reason for people to say yes to technology. So from a business point of view, what's really in it for that? Great question. The figures I've seen are 150 to 350,000 pounds. So I believe that's three hundred or three fifty to five hundred US. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And studies pre-pandemic indicated that fifty-four percent of departures were unwanted from the firm's perspective. I would suggest that's significantly <laughs> higher now with everything yeah. that's going on. But if we even just take that figure for a second, let's just run through a quick um example here. Mm-hmm. So let's say you've got a firm of around fifteen hundred associates globally, like you're a big firm. Yeah. Um, you apply that half a million US or three hundred and fifty thousand pounds per associate. Fifty-four percent of your uh, departures are unwanted from the firm's perspective. In the UK, the attrition rate I think is 16, 14, 16 percent. It's a lot lower than and even with that, a firm of that size is losing between twenty to fifty million a year. Yeah. And that that's conservative, right? So the US figures are bigger, um, the, the numbers are larger in dollars. And we speak with some firms where we quote these figures to them. We do our research ahead of the, the call and actually the attrition figure f- for them can be north of a hundred million US a year. Yeah. From my perspective, lots of legal tech can offer you a good ROI on your products. I don't think there's many out there that has as just one facet of what it's doing a hundred million US as a kitty up for grabs if you right. implement the, the software. So I think what we're offering from a business perspective is completely transformed. And, and the stats that we're seeing around the great resignation is that they're actually not slowing down at all. If anything, right. they're escalating. And so we looked at the, the reasons and, and this is connecting the business case with the underlying justification for the, the product. The main reasons are quality of training. Yeah. So people are not happy with how they're being developed, unmet work quality standards. So people getting stuck doing all the admin while someone down the hall does all the drafting. 
pursuit of specific practice interests, someone getting stuck working with someone in their area of law and unable to get out of it and better work-life balance. And all of these things are workflow problems. Yeah. Pay isn't even in the top five. And we see the wage war going on. We see money being the primary mode to solve the problem. And I understand that. And of course, money is a factor and it's important, but the research shows it's not even in the top five reasons. I believe that hundred percent because the money, and we've known this about Sydney, there's, there's certain firms that pay a lot of money. And I know friends from law school and friends now and colleagues now who still practice and they have no time. You, you can't pay people <laughs> enough. Yeah. And then if you're constantly stressed and you don't have time, and that's why there's certainly a lot of lawyers um, who are also leaving law firms to not practice. And it's not because they don't like practicing. But they're, they're trying to move away from a lot of the issues they moved away from. They want somewhere, they want to go somewhere where there is a clear path, certainly for development and training and progression, um, because those things are really important. And you want to be able to see and feel that you're making an impact at whatever you're doing, because you're spending a lot of hours a week at work, a lot of hours a week at work. Uh, and it needs to be able to translate to something other than just cash in the bank. Well, exactly. And actually... I've had a lot of conversations with associates where they've said to me, they deem their bonuses to be an apology rather than an incentive. And so that's someone who's saying, sorry, you had to work this much. So here's a bit of extra money. And so, and, and other people who widely agree, Hey, we'd rather be working 20% less and getting 20, 25% less pay. So it's a business model issue. And I'm sure there are lots of aspects of that are way obviously above my pay grade and my experience, law firm leaders know a lot more than I do about a lot of these issues, but we're trying to open a dialogue here and we're trying to ensure that the right information is there to facilitate key decisions to be made around these issues and other things like burnout and attrition, how can we get ahead of them, for example, and how can we have a multi-pronged approach to tackling these problems? What trends indicate when someone might leave? How can we monitor those things yeah. and then predict when someone might leave yeah. or, and get ahead of those things? So there's a lot that data can help with, but I think the nice thing about work allocation is it provides a way to capture it through a process that's already there, right. but it creates this structured data format. Whereas right now your instructions to me is lost to an email and somewhere yeah. in the ether or it's a telephone call and it's through that's it and and you're not collecting it you're not using it you're not leveraging it and so this is i think the starting point for a lot of the transformation around these issues well said and then i, I guess as we start wrapping up uh, i'm curious in and we spoke about obviously the large global firms that is with the 1500 associates i'm imagining that this is equally important and relevant to slightly smaller firms there's probably a limit right if you're a firm of five people um Probably there are other methods that you can employ, but certainly what would you say is if there is a minimum threshold where this becomes very useful? I would say that I'm shocked and pleasantly surprised on a daily basis by the size of some of the teams that approach us and share their requirement documents and they have exact same problems as the firms of 1500 lawyers. Right. I had a conversation with a firm this week who has 50 lawyers across the whole firm. Right. Their largest team is 14 lawyers, that includes the partners, and they are saying the exact same things as the firms right. with 1,500 lawyers. So I really don't think firm size is uh, massively relevant. I think okay. there is obviously a point where 
as long as you have open trust and relationships and, yeah. and all of these things, two or three people, then I understand that yeah. it's much easier to do it. But that's ignoring the other benefits around tracking the data, sure. leveraging it and the development piece. So we're finding that a lot of firms are even um, interested in just those aspects and everything else is just a bonus. But yeah, I'm surprised. Uh, I thought it would be unless you have a team of 25 plus, it just wouldn't be useful. Yeah. Uh, but I've been completely wrong about that. And I'm pleasantly, I say I'm pleasantly surprised that it's not great that people are having these issues. It's great that people there's feel a like there's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that people feel like this could um, tangibly help them. I, we'll have to wait and see. It'll need to be tested in different environments sure. and, and then hopefully I can answer that question a bit better. Sure. And I, I'm sure the second question I'm going to ask you is also going to have a similar answer, but I'm going to ask anyway. So this is obviously a, everyone should care about this kind of problem, but who, if I'm sitting in a board meeting, who actually is generally responsible for taking action? And let's, I'm going to exclude the very few firms that have DEI individuals and things like that. But generally speaking, is this a managing partner issue? Is the head of HR issue who actually takes ownership of this and drives these kinds of initiatives? So I've actually yet to see or come across a firm where the budget sits with DE&I. What we find is that normally it has managing partner like backing big time. Right. This is one of their key strategic projects, for example. Yeah. But in terms of the day-to-day -day, um, flag carrier is people like directors of talent, directors of innovation, yeah. um, and like COOs, for example. So it's those kinds of individuals. But interestingly, it's evolving all the time because Probably the directors of talent have only started being some of the key stakeholders in the last six months. Whereas last year, for example, it was mostly confined to ops and innovation. So right. we're seeing that as a response to firms' attention being drawn more to the attrition piece and that being something that's much higher now on the list for firms for problems that they want to tackle. Thank you. I appreciate you coming on. If people want to find out a bit more, certainly I'll link your, your LinkedIn profile in the show notes, but if people want to find out a bit more about Capacity, what you guys are doing, where should... Yeah. So our website really, and our, our LinkedIn is the, the two main channels that we use at the moment. We are hiring at the moment, so we'll probably be a bit more active soon on most platforms. We've not been very good at keeping people up to date, but all of our time and attention has been focused on making the product as good as possible and launching with our early adopters. We are busy behind the scenes. If you yeah. don't hear from us, it's more of an indication that we're busy rather than we're not. <laughs> yeah. um, but hopefully you'll hear a lot more from us with some uh, big announcements in the next few weeks. Sounds good. Thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on the show. Fantastic. Thanks for your time. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I did recording it. Before you go, if you like the show, then I know you'll love the Fringe Legal Newsletter. It's full of interviews, articles, and reports to help legal innovators like yourself learn how to put ideas into practice and find success. You can sign up for free at fringelegal.com. This show was produced for Fringe Legal by Abhijat Saraswath. A special thanks to our guest. And if you enjoyed the conversation, you can help me out by giving this podcast a five-star review and click that follow or subscribe button on your favorite podcast player of choice. Until next time, stay well.